Amen. Thank you for the good singing. And uh, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the prophet Micah. And uh, surely the best known prophecy in the book in chapter 5. Although I think I'd like to read to you that famous passage from chapter 4, the first three verses of chapter 4. I will be referring to that, and then it'll, you'll have it before you. As we consider then the uh, promise of the latter days and the coming of Messiah's reign. From Micah, Prophet Micah, chapter 4, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. In the Minor Prophets. From Micah chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke nations, strong nations, afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now over to chapter 5, just the first five verses of this here. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that that Prince of Peace would again be exalted among us, and that here in these ends of the earth, that the majesty of the name of the Lord our God shall be pleased to dwell and abide. May there be strength in your sanctuary and hope in our hearts, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. In 1858, a godly young man named, named John Payton sailed with his wife and infant son to the South Pacific to begin ministry among the islanders in what was then called the New Hebrides, or nowadays Vanuatu. Within just a month of their arrival, though, both John's infant son and then his wife lay dead, leaving him to labor very alone. It was the start of a great many miseries that he had to endure, and uh, his biography still available, a very gripping account. I commend it to you and your families. Uh, you wonder, reading it, what gave Peyton this remarkable tenacity 
and faithfulness, even boldness in his work, despite all the opposition he faced. Well, he himself wrote this. I built the grave round and round with coral blocks and covered the top with beautiful white coral, broken small gravel, and that spot became my sacred and very much frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on the, for the salvation of these savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Whensoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, man in after days will find the memory of that spot still green, where I, with ceaseless prayers and tears, I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. Doubtless, these poor degraded savages are a part of the Redeemer's inheritance given to him in the Father's eternal covenant, and thousands of them are destined through us to sing his praise in the glory and the joy of the heavenly world. In other words, Peyton endured so many great difficulties, discouragements, and deaths because he knew something about the practical power of hope. He knew that Christ had died for men out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that included the South, South Sea. And at the end of his life, he, he wrote this, I claimed Anawa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. He persevered unto victory. It's very important that God gives his people hope, especially in difficult and dark times. In fact, by one account, some 27% of the Bible is predictive prophecy, some 8,000 verses all told. That like, may seem like a, it's like a lot. It seemed like a great deal to me when I first read that. I haven't studied it, but uh, I, I suppose that uh, that sounds reasonable enough. But perhaps we wonder then why God spent so much time telling his people about what was going to happen, which to us is now, even in the past, has been fulfilled. Well, one important answer that we consider today is that our God is the God of hope. As I said earlier today, we now live in discouraging times. We ourselves are prone to despair, and for good reason. And when the world is coming apart at the seams, when we feel like it is pointless to go on, why it doesn't seem like following the Lord will do any good at this point, we need God's reassurance that he nevertheless has good plans and purposes that must be fulfilled in the world. That was certainly the situation in the southern kingdom of Judah when the prophet Micah was called to prophesy. It, this prophecy was given in the very dark days of a moral and religious collapse, particularly of the national leadership. Uh, for example, we find a few verses earlier, ch chapter 3, uh, God says, her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Everybody is just on the take. Ungodliness had won the day, and now God's judgment had come in the form of the Assyrian army. 
Uh, Sennacherib at this point had already devastated Judah and had laid siege to Jerusalem to the great disc- disgrace of King Hezekiah. It seemed like just, a moment, just like a matter of time before the mighty army of Assyria wore down the people of God. That's the reference, by the way, in verse 1 to he has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. In other words, he will be struck. He will be shamed. But we go on to read here, certainly not destroyed. For though it will be a humiliating defeat for Hezekiah, in wrath God will remember mercy. The bad news is covered by the prophet in the first three chapters or so. And then at this dark and discouraging time, when the people of God are surrounded by their enemies, when the long siege looks like it is destined to succeed, the crisis in Jerusalem is met with a word of hope. At this dark and discouraging time, then God gives his people this anchor of hope of better days yet to come, beginning in Bethlehem. That crisis in Jerusalem was occasioned specifically by a crisis of leadership. But God has an ultimate answer, that he will send his own shepherd king. And that is what this prophecy is about. I say it's probably the most famous, it is surely the most famous from the book of Micah, that combined with chapter 4, the promise of peace that we read earlier. You remember this morning we read how King Herod uh, wanted to know the location of the Messiah's birth, and the Jewish priests, they, they knew right away without hesitation, in Bethlehem, in Judea, because there's more than one Bethlehem. This is the Judean one. For thus it is written by the prophet, quoting Micah the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come one who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, By the way, it's quoted once more in John chapter 7, when Jesus speaks boldly at the feast of dedication. He preaches, and the people reply, this is the Christ. Some say, well, the Christ come out of Galilee. Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David in the town of Bethlehem? Micah was a famous piece of hope. It, it, it was the people's uh, star in their dark sky for years, and a well-known passage, therefore. Micah, you notice here, not only predicts Christ's hometown, but several very wonderful things that were going to come into the world with the Messiah. This Christ, I'll mention four, this Christ would be great in his person. We read that his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, an unusual statement, and as it is in poetry especially, scholars do debate what this means. Some translations, like mine, say that it's from the Messiah is from everlasting, meaning perhaps an eternal origin, maybe a divine origin. And it's certainly true that Jesus is both eternal and divine according to his divine nature. That uh, phrase is translated eternal in Deuteronomy, for instance. Others of you, though, have that phrase translated from ancient days, that he comes from ancient days, which might refer to uh, Bethlehem or Christ's human lineage from David. Hard to say. A lot of people have cast doubt on my traditional reading, and it can't be dogmatic, although I think it's probably right. But Micah's fellow prophet Isaiah was also just as bold to say clearly that the one who is coming 
is none less than the mighty God. And I suppose that uh, whether this points to Christ's origin in everlasting as the Son of God or to his origin in uh, Bethlehem as the Son of David, both are true. He will be great in his person, though is clearly the point. This is no ordinary ruler coming forth. He will be great in his calling. Verse 2, God says that his Messiah shall come forth, he says, to me. He shall come forth to me. The Christ has come chiefly to achieve God's purposes in the world. He comes as the servant of the Lord. Paralleling again, uh, Micah's friend and fellow prophet, prophesying at the same time, Isaiah, behold my servant, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him, and he'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles, and so forth. He, he is the servant of the Lord, who has a great calling. Third, he will be great in his ministry. He's going to stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, they shall abide. Verse 4, the good shepherd, unlike those corrupt leaders of Micah's day, led the people into ruin. This Messiah will tend the flock in the strength of the Lord, and in him they shall safely abide and dwell. Christ comes to serve his people, to wash his disciples' feet. These earlier kings in Israel and Judah were just often tyrants, and their yoke was heavy. Not so with this king to come. His his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He commands and receives obedience, but that obedience is of the loving and well-cared-for sheep. Never did they have such a shepherd king before, whose service is perfect freedom. And blessed are the people who are the sheep of his pasture. Well, he is great in his ministry, and finally we learn that he will be great in his salvation. Not only is he sent for the salvation of Israel, he shall be great, verse 4, to the ends of the earth. His dominion, indeed, as we sing elsewhere, is from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. All kings shall bow down before him, all nations shall serve him. And Micah concludes, this one shall be peace. This one shall be peace. He is our peace, as Paul probably refers to this passage as he writes to the Ephesians that in Christ Jesus, you who were, you Gentiles far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Well, such was the promise given to God's people in a dark, discouraging time, a time of need. He gave his people this majestic description, a very specific description in so many ways, of what will come to pass in the latter or last days. So chapter 4 gives us this vision we read at the beginning of universal repentance and worship and the nations coming to seek the Lord and to learn his ways. And the result would be universal peace of nations at eventually not learning war anymore, but beating swords into pruning hooks. And, it, and this is through chapter 5, the coming of the messianic king, great in his person, great in his calling, great in his ministry, great in his salvation. That's just what they needed to hear at a time, a time in, in Jerusalem when all hope seemed to be lost. I, I bring this to you because of what I mentioned this morning, that we need an encouraging vision for the same time in our day. God has plans, great plans, which still you realize are just barely fulfilled according to the glory of these words. Yes, the king has come. Yes, the prince of peace is here. And, and yet, the, the extent of his peace and the, 
the, the, the uh, extent of his domain has not anywhere near reached its full measure that we have read today. We too need a, measure, a, a message that comes with the practical power of hope. In Dante's vision of hell in the Inferno, there is an inscription over the entrance, the portal of hell, and it says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And that is, if you like, the essence of hell itself, to be hopeless. I mean, I suppose even the great terrors of hell might be endured if we knew that there was at least some end. But the endless, hopeless character of that ministry, of that misery, that is hell indeed. You know, it was during the American Civil War that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem that since has been made into a song. Just heard it sung by Frank Sinatra two days ago about hearing the church bells play their old familiar carols of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Bells that were then drowned out by the thundering of cannon fire. Picking up in the second to last verse of his poem, he says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Last verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. He had just lost his wife. His son had been injured in the war. It was a very meaningful poem for him. It does seem like we are ready to despair. We hear the, the cannons firing. Hate is strong and mocks the song. But God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. God would have his people know he has purposes yet, purposes of hope. And he wishes us to be beacons of hope in a hopeless world. And not just hope, powerful hope, action. Hope has this power to endure this power to encourage us to press through difficulty, knowing for certain that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's what John Payton found on the island. Indeed, this very prophecy of Micah's, and others, others like it, were used at the inauguration of missionary societies, and many others have taken these words of encouragement in order that they might be fruitful, faithful uh, members of the kingdom of God, according to their various callings. I'd like to name just in a few areas this evening how practical this is. In evangelism and missions, let me give you a couple of examples here from this. After five and a half years of pioneer missionary work in India, without one single convert, William Carey wrote to his friend Samuel Pierce, the work to which God has set his hands will infallibly prosper. Christ has begun to besiege this 
ancient and strong fortress, and will assuredly carry it. And then when, after seven years of fruitless ministry, eventually Krishna Powell converted to Christ his first and at the time only convert, he wrote, he was only one, but a continent was coming behind him. The divine grace which changed one Indian's heart could obviously change a hundred thousand. Now, Carey was an excellent linguist, but he was not a man otherwise remarkably gifted. He did say, well, though, I can plod. I can keep on going. I can hold on to a promise and continue to go through the muck. And that is just what I am going to do. I may not be the best speaker, the most faithful preacher, but I can plod and I can hold on to a promise while I do it. And of course, just the beginning of his vision for that mighty land of 1.1 billion people has been fulfilled to this day. You could think of David Livingston. Traveled some 29,000 miles on foot. His vision for the future permeated his endeavors. He wrote, a minister who had not seen so much pioneer service as I would have been shocked to see how so little effect procured. I just say any minister would be amazed to see how little fruit I have for all my work. But time must be given to allow the truth to sink into the dark mind and produce its effect. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, he writes. That is enough. We can afford to work in faith, for God is pledged to fulfill the promise. There will come a day, he says, I will assemble the lame, the outcast, and so forth, that all the nations of the earth shall go up to the mountain of the Lord to learn his ways, to, to walk in his paths, and, the Zion, and from Zion the law shall go forth. That ruler of Israel, who is our peace, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and that surely includes the continent of Africa, which you might know just in the last few generations has become uh, one of the more Christian places on earth, sub-Saharan Africa. The work yet continues. Well, Livingston could plod. He had many a difficulty. There's one day that he wrote, um, a quiet audience today, <laughs> the seed being sown, the least of all seeds now, but it will grow a mighty tree. It is, as it were, a small stone cut out of a mountain, but it will fill the whole earth. Another day, he writes, we work for a glorious future which we are not destined to see. We are only morning stars shining in the dark, but the glorious morn will break. Christ had died for men out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that expectation had led him through so many difficulties. It led so many Christians then to invest in this work, building schools and seminaries and orphanages and hospitals, anticipating the great infrastructure that would one day be necessary in future years to be carried on by an indigenous population to bring the word of Christ to their people. We work for a glorious future which we are not destined to see. David Livingston, at the end of his days, by the way, was found dead upon his knees, no doubt praying for his poor downtrodden Africa, dying in undiminished confidence, 
quote, missionaries do not live before their time. Their great idea of converting the world to Christ is no chimera. It is divine. Christianity will triumph. It is equal to all it has to perform. Well, I won't continue uh, at the same length with all these other areas, simply to say that in terms of the advance of the gospel through the world, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly in our land. And, and yet we, we see God's redemption of the earth, his harvest of the earth, is only yet beginning in so many great lands. Politics. How does hope change the way that nations go? Uh, well, we read here in Micah 4 about uh, the day in which the nations turn to the Lord, learn his ways, submit to his laws, and love his peace. William Wilberforce is a tremendous example of standing alone for the Lord when it was the most difficult thing to do because he trusted that the wrong shall fail and the right prevail in God's time. In the uh, dedication of his evening exercises to William Wilberforce, the author William J. 1831, takes up this subject. He writes, I rejoice, my dear sir, that a person of your consideration is in the healthful number of those who, notwithstanding the contemptuous denial of some and the gloomy forebodings of others, believe that real religion has been advancing and is spreading and will continue to spread till without any disruption of the present system, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. If we are not to be weary in well-doing, we need not only exhortation, but hope, which is at once the most active as well as the most cheerful principle. Nothing so unnerves energy and slackens diligence as despondency. Get all those words? You say, I'm just so glad that there's somebody like you in government that actually believes that the progress of religion is going to make its course continually through the world. And we need not only exhortation, we need hope. It's the most active and cheerful principle we can hold on to, and nothing so destroys our energy and slackens our diligence as when we are discouraged. That's a good word for politicians like Wilberforce, who stood virtually alone, as you know, in his day, seeking to end the slave trade. For many years, his health broken, his energy spent, his money consumed, until, of course, he was victorious. Education. Alexander B. Campbell established several Christian schools in India, having a long-term view, not only of preparing Christians, but of educated leaders for that great land. I mean, one day, the nations of the earth are going to turn to the Lord. They're going to need educated Christians to lead them. Uh, here's a brief note. He writes from India to the Free Church of Scotland Missionary Conference to explain the ordinary ways of God's working in the world. Christian education, more than anything else, has prepared a large body of the people for a wide rejection of Hinduism and for a reception of Christ as the Savior. Should it please God graciously to pour out his spirit from on high in this land? All history proclaims that this is the way in which God generally works. There are long seasons of preparation, <laughs> right? Micah looks 700 years in the future. Uh, 
He sees what's going to happen, which just begins 700 years later for him, right? There are long seasons of preparation, writes Campbell. The truth is spread, obstacles are removed out of the way, and then God comes in his power and turns the people to himself. A nation is born in a day, and a little one becomes a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, much education in the developing world is Christian education because for generations, Christians held on to this view that the ends of the earth would at last turn to the Lord and they needed to prepare people who could read, who knew something of the word of God and of the foolishness of idols and that one day there would be arising from them people who were the leaders and the people who would step forward to guide their nation into the way of peace. Finally, prayer, prayer. So many 21st century North American Christian believers have no kingdom hopes or expectations. Missionary activity, as we considered a few minutes ago, is very different among those who are uh, discouraged and think this is just the, the end, things are worse and worse to the end. They don't build large infrastructure. They don't have the, the big vision of the evangelization of a continent before them. Their missionary work tends to be conversion of souls as many and quickly as possible with no sustaining infrastructure, and it shows. Um, politics. Uh, there, there is not an engagement in politics with a view that the right will fall, with the right, with the right will prevail. Uh, reading a book right now by John MacArthur, who makes this point very, very, very clearly. This is not our hope or our calling. It's going to get worse and worse to the end. We need to throw ourselves into uh, other things. Education. Once again, you you, you don't pour money into. Uh, uh, schools, universities, seminaries, and foreign lands, unless you think we're in for the long haul. Uh, so when we pray, thy kingdom come, what do we pray for? What is our expectation? What, what is our hope? We may quote, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But does anyone believe it's actually going to be fulfilled? Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. What do you pray for? What do you think of the prayers of the Psalms that we sing so often, of the nations returning to the Lord who made them, and that God would haste the day, and so forth? Here's Charles Spurgeon. David was not a believer in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse, and that this dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down amidst tenfold night, if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Nor do we expect, but look for a day. It's not a matter of a hope, but we look for a day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness and trust in the Savior and shall worship thee alone, O God, and glorify thy name. The modern notion has greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions, and the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. It neither consorts with prophecy nor honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Hence, be it driven. Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, says we need a return to not just the confidence, but the, the looking for the fulfillment of these things among the nation, and we need to pray accordingly, he says. So I, I put it to you. In a dark time, at a dark moment, when it seemed that hope was lost, 
God yet had a word for his people. It's not the end. I have good purposes in the world. It may seem like all hope is gone. <laughs> I am only just getting started. Uh, we, we need to remember that uh, God is in it for the long haul, that he has great purposes that will be fulfilled. And when we are discouraged, when we are saying, well, what's the point? We think, well, what if Christians had taken such a position for the last 2,000 years? Where would we be today? I, I hope I've given you some reason to believe that the people used to believe better things. Let me read, though, from one man's book, his, his assessment of Europe. Let me just read this to you. I think I've read it to you uh, before, but just go along with me. Um, at the end of the year, most men in Western Europe feel exceeding, felt exceedingly gloomy about the future. Christian civilization appeared to be shrinking in area and dividing into hostile units as its sphere contracted. Institutions were decaying. Well-meaning people were growing cynical or desperate. Many intelligent men, for want of something better to do, were endeavoring to escape the present through a study of the pagan past, Islam was now spreading into the expanse of Christendom. He goes on to say that many Christians were just looking for the end of the world, that European Christianity itself was in very heavy decline and almost totally corrupt. That year was 1492. Let's not make the same mistake. Look at the world today and use it as an excuse for despair or worse, for being wicked and lazy servants. At the end of the 15th century, they had every reason to look at the world and say, it seems futile, concluding that the day of the Lord had surely to be at hand. But of course, they were at the very end of what's been called the Dark Ages. And maybe it is darkest before the dawn. What light was about to break forth in the discovery of a new world, but especially at the Reformation? What a renewal it brought to Europe, well, through Europe, to the whole world. I don't know what the future holds in our lifetimes. I don't know what it means for the West uh, to have Christianity in such decline among us. But the job of the Christian is not to take marching orders from the world or from what is seen in the world. This I know. God's salvation will surely spread to the ends of the earth, and we can pray and labor in confident hope. Thy kingdom come. May it be so in the coming year. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would so seal the hope of this world, uh, of this word, for our edification and encouragement upon our hearts. Strengthen us that we might continue our own progress, however small, in the training of children, in the advancement of the work of your church, in the support of foreign missions, not growing weary or discouraged, but knowing that our labor is never in vain in the Lord. We ask that you would accomplish these great things that we have read about, that the fulfillment of these things would be more and more seen even in our own day as you are doing mighty things in Asia and Africa and other locations. We, we pray that these nations of the earth, many nations, may come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, to learn your ways. We pray that that Messiah who yet stands to feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God shall indeed be great. And to the very ends of the earth, may this one be our peace. May these nations of the earth, so hostile, so fearsome in their weapons and the battles, and the, uh, the, the uh, arms for battle, uh, may these arms 
be made into spear, into pruning hooks, and uh, may the nations rest in the peace of the King of Peace. May nation no longer lift up sword against nation, nor learn any more. O God, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is.